The first lesson is to be found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7, which you will find on page 1035 in the Church Bibles. Luke, chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 1. When Jesus had finished talking to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. Now the centurion had heard of Jesus, and he sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Acts and begins at the end of chapter 22 and carries on into, sorry, end of chapter 21 and carries on into chapter 22. And this is on page 1119 in the Church Bible. The year is AD 57. Paul is on his last visit to Jerusalem, but his presence has caused disorder and the senior Roman soldier has arrested him for his own safety and to prevent a riot, but Paul has asked for permission to speak. So our reading begins in, in uh, chapter 21 and verse 40. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, 
I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed round me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that you know us and you love us, whoever we are. Just invite your Holy Spirit to be amongst us this morning, to touch our hearts and minds, and to open our eyes to teach us more of you. Amen. Good morning. Um, I wonder when it is, or where it is, that you find time to think and pray about life. I like to think about life and to talk to God while I'm walking the dog. Some people make good use of gardening time or ironing time to do the same. And I've recently spoken to a couple of people who've spent many, many hours of their life commuting. And uh, they quite appreciated the, the train ride home or the car drive for the same reason. Do you know, apparently the average worker in Britain today spends 54 minutes commuting every day. And as I, uh, that's quite a lot of time, isn't it, really? And it all adds up if you use it well. And as I prepared for today, I, I was caused to wonder what Saul was thinking about as he made his steady commute on his donkey or whatever he was riding from Jerusalem to Damascus, because this was his day job. Um, and he was going there to root out Christians. But whatever was on his mind, our reading today tells us how his train of thought was abruptly interrupted. This story is so important that it's told three different times in the book of Acts. You can find it in chapter 9, it's here in chapter 22, and again in chapter 26. We hear the account from different points of view and told to different audiences, and I've rather enjoyed comparing them and piecing together a fuller understanding of the story. So I'm going to draw from them all as I speak. You might want to put your finger in chapter 9, because it's quite fun to read it from there as well. So let's spend some time thinking together about the experiences of Saul, who, who later became known as, as Paul, as we know. And we'll see what we can learn about his experience of the living God. As we read... I'm going to offer three questions for us to ponder this morning. Of course, there are many, many more questions you could think about, but we're just going to focus on three or we'd be here till tea time. Now, occasionally, after the service, people have been known to question me about the gospel's focus on the sick, the poor, and the disadvantaged. I've had people say to me, it's not my fault I've got a job and an education and I'm not really that needy. Surely God loves me too. Well, yes, he does. If that thought has crossed your mind, good news. Today, we're exploring the faith of Saul. He was born in Tarsus. It was a significant city in southern Turkey with about half a million inhabitants. A nice place to be associated with. He describes himself as a citizen, so he was what we might call somebody from the elite class. He's well educated. He comes from a respectable family of Pharisees who provided him with the best education available to a young Jewish man. 
he moved at a very early age to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, who was a highly respected scholar. As our reading opens today, he calls on the high priest and his council to back him up and say how zealous he was in keeping the Jewish law. Now, this is interesting, not only because it shows us he really was a very good Jew, but it also tells us he moves in the best social circles. Not many people in the crowd would have ever met the high priest, much less have been able to call on him for a character witness. It would be like saying, of course I'm a good Christian, ask the bishop. Do we do that? Not many of us, really. In short, I think it would be fair to say that he was comfortably off, well-educated and well-connected socially, and working very hard at being the best sort of Jew he knew how to be. He's not just a passive Jew, as it were. He actively encourages others to keep the law. And when he comes across heresy, well, he does his very best to stamp it out and protect what he knows to be right. He has gained for himself quite a reputation speaking out against Jesus and his followers, which people were calling at the time the way. To the point where he's recognized really as the official opposition, and he is definitely dangerous. The account in chapter 9, if you want to flick back to that, tells us he's going around breathing out murderous threats and causing havoc amongst the early church in Jerusalem. And yet something happens to stop Saul in his tracks. He sets off to Damascus, where he's heard there's an outbreak of very un-Jewish behavior with every intention of ferociously protecting the Jewish faith and stamping out this new sect. In truth, Christians were quaking because he was on the warpath. But then as he potters along, possibly thinking of the day ahead or planning his diary, he nears his destination and out of nowhere, God speaks to him. He not only speaks to him, he calls him by name. Now, if someone addresses you by name, it's very personal, isn't it? It says, I've noticed you. I recognize you. I want your attention. It's actually quite difficult to ignore someone who addresses you by name, especially if that voice is accompanied by a flash of light brighter than the noonday sun. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I find that a very beautiful verse, rather intimate the way it addresses the reader. It seems in the Bible God has a habit of calling to his people. Saul was doing a reasonable job of life in human terms, really. But God stops him in his tracks. He interrupts his plans and his schedules. He disturbs his religious convictions and he challenges his education. He intrudes on his well-connected social circle. He calls him by name and introduces himself. 
He calls Saul out of darkness into light. He calls him out of fierce independence into humble obedience. He calls him from death to life. He wants a personal relationship with Saul, as he does with you and me this morning. I wonder, is God calling your name? Is he saying to you this morning, hello there, Roger, Mary, hello there, Keith, hello there, Laura, Catherine, hello, David, Paul, I've noticed you. I want your attention. Will you let him break into your successful social life and career, your church commitments, your family and your plans? Will you stop and have a conversation with him? Will you allow him, should he wish to, alter, to alter the direction you're traveling in like Saul did? God introduced himself to Saul. Yet at first, all is not at all clear to Saul. I imagine Saul is wondering if he's gone mad or, or been struck blind forever. He knows something unusual is happening, but he can't see it straight away. In fact, he can't see anything at all for several days. He has to be guided by his friends at first, to someone who can help him through this unusual experience. We find out more about this part of the story from Ananias' account, that's in chapter 9, where we read that Saul's friends have to lead him by the hand like a child into Damascus. This smart, scary, powerful man has been completely brought up short by an encounter with the living God. God makes him wait for three days. I wonder why he did that. Perhaps he needed to be humbled. Perhaps he needed to acknowledge his need of God. Perhaps he needed time to accept a new approach to life. He certainly needed thinking time. I'm sure it felt like a very, very long time to Saul. God appears to set him aside for three days, by which time we're told in verse 11, he's turned to prayer. Sometimes God does keep us waiting, and that is rarely a comfortable experience. It can feel like you're being ignored, set aside, unappreciated, in spite of your best efforts. In his blind and uncomprehending shock, Saul might reasonably have felt afraid or angry or sorry for himself, or maybe all three. I wonder if you identify with that today. Are you wondering what God is up to? Take heart, God has called you by name. He does have a plan. In chapter 9, we hear that God was not simply ignoring Saul. He was busy calling somebody else by name, Ananias, 
Now, this is quite a different conversation because immediately Ananias recognizes God's voice when he tells him to go and pray for Saul for his healing. Now, I find it quite amusing that Ananias doesn't flinch at the idea of God using him to heal a blind man. Doesn't bat an eyelid. I think I'd find that quite exciting. Ananias decides it's necessary to tell God that Saul isn't a very nice person. He's clearly not a suitable recipient for a miracle. This is a very short discussion. God tells Ananias he has an important job for Saul, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now we know Ananias is a good law-keeping Jew as well as a believer in Jesus. So this would have been a lot of information for him to process all at once. Not only is God proposing to embrace what Ananias views as a murderous Jew, but also he's sending him out to offer new life to the Gentiles. This would have been a very challenging download of information for Ananias. However, Ananias is obedient and he goes and prays for Saul. In spite of all that he might have thought, and I'm sure what his friends would have said, he calls him brother and he prays for healing and he prays for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit because body, mind and spirit are integrally linked and new life in Jesus brings healing and wholeness to all. Returning for a moment to chapter 22. When he's healed, Saul seems surprised and delighted. I wonder if Ananias was. We're not told. I am, however, always struck with how courageous Ananias was in answering God's call there. And so to glance away from Saul just for a moment, my second question is this. Is God asking you to be courageous today and to call someone brother or sister for the first time, even if you're not sure they're very nice? Is God calling you to stand beside someone before you see them change and speak words of truth and healing to them in the name of Jesus. Immediately, he finds faith. Saul takes a step of obedience and he's baptized. That must have been quite a humbling step for a man such as Saul. And yet, we see in chapter 9, as Saul practices what he's called to do, as he steps into the life he's called to by God, he increases in power. And the Jews in Damascus are baffled by the change in him. It's a great word, isn't it? They're baffled. This won't come as a surprise to those on the Growing Leaders course, where we've been studying all year and finding out that the place where we are most fruitful and most fulfilled is where we're doing what God is actually calling us to do. Saul preaches Jesus as the Messiah. He talks about someone he has met, someone who has called him by name, 
and with whom he now has a relationship. This new Saul is not entirely well received, either in Damascus or in Jerusalem. His change of heart might be well illustrated to us with a little football analogy. I'm not a great fan of football, but I am told this year Peter Cech moved from Chelsea to Arsenal. For those who don't know, he's a talented um, goalkeeper. But these two teams must meet and play against each other. How do you think the Chelsea fans now view their old goalkeeper when he's keeping goal for the opposition? He's completely changed sides. In Saul's case, it really didn't go down well, and he has to escape to Damascus under cover of night in a basket lowered down through the wall. How undignified is that? And yet, once again, he's accompanied in this tricky stage of his journey of faith by another courageous, obedient man of God who speaks boldly on his behalf to the early church. His name was Barnabas. Saul found himself in an unusual position. Unsure of what to do next, he went back to Jerusalem and went straight to the temple to pray. He returns to where he knows how to find God. And because he makes time for God and he listens to him, God once again speaks to him, although this time it's perhaps a little bit less of an alarming experience. God gives him a commission, a vision for his future. It's a vision that's going to require Saul to travel, to alter his plans. Saul's life will never be quite the same again. This dynamic, capable, clever man doesn't develop a strategy of his own. He waits on God and God speaks to him, taking his life in a new and perhaps surprising direction. Although he doesn't have the rest of his life completely planned out in the light of this new understanding, Saul takes a step of obedience. God tells him to be baptized and he responds immediately. God commissions him to take the good news of the gospel to people who are not Jewish, and Saul obeys. God uses all that Saul is for the good of the kingdom. He's educated and skilled in public speaking. He's bold and confident socially, and he knows how to effectively speak to different kinds of people groups. He knows the law and how to put a good case God puts all that Saul brings to use, and yet there are changes. Saul's Christianity meant a radical change in his whole nature. We even begin to call him Paul, which is his Roman name. Perhaps in part, that expresses a subtle change in him, as well as an identification with the people group that God calls him to share the gospel with. He went out from Jerusalem, a persecutor, but he came to Damascus, a Christian. He rode out of Jerusalem, despising Jesus Christ. 
but he was led by the hand like a child into Damascus, broken and wandering about his new relationship with Jesus. He went out proud, self-reliant, rather proud of his many rights as a high-ranking Jew, his pure descent, his rabbinical knowledge, his pharisaical training, his rigid morality. He arrived at Damascus blind in the eyes, but seeing in the soul and discerning that all these things were, as he says later on in his rather strong and vehement way, but dung in comparison with his getting to know Jesus Christ. Saul never sits on the fence, does he? God spoke to Saul and called him by name. When he waited on him, God gave Saul instructions and Saul was immediately, immediately obedient. That leads me to our final question for this morning. And that's this, what is God asking of you today? And will you do it? Perhaps it's something simple, a step of obedience. Will you commit to something in Jesus' name? Might you be baptised or confirmed this year? It's a way of marking a new start in your Christian journey. If so, if that appeals to you, speak to me afterwards. I would love to explore it with you. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe God wants to give you a commission, a new focus in your life. Will you, like Saul, like Ananias, and like Barnabas, be courageous and respond with obedience? Will you take a risk with Jesus, the one who has called you by name because he loves you and he's given his all for you? Will you agree to step out on a new stage of your journey of faith with him, even if you can't quite see where it might lead at this stage? So three questions. One, is God calling your name this morning? Two, is God asking you to be courageous and stand beside someone and call them brother so that they might find faith? And three, what is God asking you to do today? Will you do it? No wonder this story features three times in the Acts of the Apostles. It's life-transforming. Saul started out capable and gifted, well-placed in many ways. But he gave all that he was to God, who turned him around and redirected his energies for the sake of the kingdom. What about you? Will you give all that you are to Jesus? Will you allow him to speak to you, to direct you, to use all that you are in his name? As we gather around the communion table this morning, holding out our hands to receive the gifts of bread and wine that remind us of his love for us, how will you respond? Don't rush away from that moment this morning. Jesus is calling to each one of us. Take time to listen and to respond.
What is he asking of you today? And how will you respond to him? Amen.